Well, good morning, everyone. I wanted to um, say that this morning we have an opportunity today to look in and gaze into the majesty of God. We get to look into the powerful rule and reign of Jesus Christ over all things. It's found in Psalm 2. And just like he said in Matthew 28, 18, is true. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And Psalm 2 takes us into what I would say is the control room of heaven. And so we get to look at that this morning, and it's going to be exciting. Just as Psalm 1, last week when Tim introduced Psalms, as we begin to unpack a few of these along the way, as we make our way to Romans uh, here real soon, um, in Psalm 1, the entire book is the theme. And so in Psalm 2, we declare the ultimate rule and reign of Christ as sovereign over all things. So in Psalm 1, we have a general view of how our decisions are made and our de- destinies are determined, but then we have the plumb line in Psalm 2 as to who is it that we answer to. And so one, one commentator said this, Matthew Henry said, as the foregoing Psalm 1 was moral and showed us our duty and our delight, so this is evan- evangelical, which shows us the Savior for whom we answer to. Well, Plumer, another commentator, said this about Psalm 2. The great design of the psalm is to foretell the hatred of men to the person and reign of Christ. But it also says the glories of the Messiah, the triumph of his kingdom, and the dreadful downfall of his foes. Thus, it lays a proper ground for the solemn exhortation to all men to yield themselves subjects to the Prince of Life, who is Jesus Christ the King. So like many Psalms, let me just kind of give a little overview before we jump in. Many Psalms, the theme of the Psalm can be found in the last verse. Now that's not all the Psalms, but it is in Psalm 2. So let me direct our attention to the last verse of Psalm 2. It says, kiss the Son, or give respect to the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so there you have it. That's going to be where we land today through this psalm. So in other words, we can rebel against God and we can face his wrath. Or we can submit to Christ, kiss the Son, and be blessed. Did you get that? You can reject God, you can fight against God and face His wrath. Or you can submit yourself to His King, Lord Jesus, and be blessed. Either way, Christ is Lord. Either way, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. So, here we go. Let's take a look at who who wrote Psalm. Now, you know, in, in our Connect class, by the way, we have Connect where we take what we hear in morning worship and we unpack it in small groups. This morning's small group, we began to look at uh, Psalms and its uniqueness and so forth. And sometimes the Psalms are not all written by David. Did you notice that? Some would say, well, all the Psalms are written by David. No? Well, I wonder if this one is. And so let's find out who wrote this. Well, interestingly enough, you don't find the author of this Psalm within the Psalm. In other words, there was a question as to who wrote this. 
Well, where can we find that? Well, actually, you can find it in the New Testament in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 to 26, in the middle of a prayer. It unfolds who wrote Psalm 2. Listen to this. Right in the middle of the prayer here, it says in verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, who said by the Holy Spirit, here it is, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They were quoting out of Psalm 2. And it says, our father David. So it is a Davidic psalm. It is a psalm written by David. And uh, it is a messianic psalm. It's about Jesus. Well, I wonder what psalm, how is Psalm 2 put together? And you know the psalms are songs, right? Songs that were sung. And so various psalms are put together in different ways. You know, like Proverbs is different couplets, two and two and two. This psalm happens to be four sections. And in poetry, I understand, I'm no a poet or a son of a poet, Uh, but in poetry, it's called a strophe, and there are four of these, four sections. Each section has a different voice in this case. Section 1, verses 1 to 3, has the psalmist observations of how the nations resist and plot against the Lord and against His anointed. So that's first section. Section 2, verses 4 to 6, has the Lord of heaven sitting and laughing. It's interesting. God laughs at the calamities of men. He, he's sitting there, and it tells us that he is, we'll talk about it in a moment, but it's a futile effort of the nations uh, plotting against him. In, in the next section, verses 7 to 9, we'll find that the Father is declaring his decree of his only begotten Son and of his inheritance. And the final section has the author giving a warning all to either submit and kiss the Son or perish under the judgment. So there it is, Psalm 2 in structure. So let's begin at the beginning, verse 1 and ver- to verse 3. Here it is. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So where does this rage come from? It says, why do the nations rage? The assumption is they do. And it's, when you talk about a nation, we're talking about the peoples of the earth. We're talking about mankind. We're talking from the top down. Why do the nations rage? Why the anger? Where, why the rebellion? Where does this rebellion come from? Because it's not like any other rebellion. This is a very damning rebellion. This is a rebellion that they will not win. Let's look and see what Paul said in Romans chapter 1 that we'll hear uh, spoke of when we get to Romans. Paul describes where the rage comes from. It says here in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, get this, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree 
that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but get this, but give approval to those who practice them. They think they can actually get others to do the same. It's a rage. Well, who is the object of the rage? According to Psalm 2, verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers against who? The Lord and his anointed. It's against God. And not only just against God, it's against Jesus. It's against his plan. It's against salvation. It's against the one and only way to be reconciled. It is a rage against God and his anointed. I ask the questions, and when you do Bible study, many times we ask the scriptures the question. You read something like that, and I would ask the question, do they really think that even if they join forces with each other, that they can thwart Almighty God? Do you think that if you get a few people together, you could actually be a force against God? Think about this. In this section, which I call man versus God. Really? Man versus, who's going to win that? Man versus God. Well, I can't first God, but maybe if we got a lot of people that hate God, we could get a lot of God-haters together. Maybe we get a nation of God-haters. Maybe we could get two nations of God-haters. How many nations of God-haters do you think can fight Almighty God? You're not going to win. And so why do the nations rage? Why do they come against God's anointed? How ironic to think that the bondage breaker is the one in which they're trying to break. God has been called the bondage breaker. He breaks us of our own sin and he frees us. Here it says, look at this in verse verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart. In other words, they're declaring that God is the one restricting them. But God is the one who wants to free them. But they said, we are going to break the bondage breaker. They call him the bondage breaker maker. And so they fight against God. Did you see that in verse 3? They view God as the problem, and man is the answer. And you've done that. I've done that too. Sometimes I think God's ways don't seem like my ways, and somehow I think my ways might be better than God's ways. How has that ever worked for you? They think their way is better than God, and they think God's ways are wrong. And so they fight against him. They join together and they say, we will break their bonds. What if they overthrew God? What is their plan? Total corruption and rage. Why do the nations rage? Do you think fighting God and winning would clear their rage? No, they are full of rage. So it is God who sets us free to attempt to overthrow God's kingdom. Get this. To to try to overthrow God is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It was ridiculous to David and the psalmist here. It's ridiculous now in our modern culture where we can say there is no God. It's ridiculous to fight the creator and the giver of all life. Andre Rivet says, a commentator, don't you love commentators? They just boil it down, and here he is. It's as if a fly 
should attack an elephant. That's how ridiculous it is to think that the nations are going to overthrow. Somehow God's not going to win. Somehow you're smarter than God, and so it's ridiculous. So what else happens? Look what happens in verse 4. The nations are raging. They're plotting against God. They think they can do it. Verse 4 to 6 in the next section. He who sets in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Notice God's posture in verse 4. It says he sits. The nations are raging and plotting against him. And the God of the universe is sitting, relaxed. He knows what they don't know. He is not concerned. He's not nervous that the nations are raging. I've heard maybe some of you have thought maybe, does God even know what's going on in our world? It seems so crazy. Yeah, he knows what's going on, and he sits relaxed. He's in control, even when it looks like it's out of control. It says he he sits there, and it says this is, in fact, it's a picture of God's sovereignty. Notice also what God does. The mercy of God in not destroying them immediately, and he could. But speaking a word to them in verse 5. Do you see that in verse 5? It says, he will speak to them in his wrath. Now, some of us don't understand that because when we have wrath, we can't speak. I mean, we're so, so upset, we don't even get a word out. God's wrath is under control, and God's wrath still speaks a word. I wonder what word it would be. In his wrath, he speaks. I would think, I mean, this is just a, a side note, I would think that if, God, if the nations are raging against God, that God in his wrath would speak judgment to all, the end of you. He kind of did that in Noah's day. But he doesn't do that here. The nations are against him, and what does God do in his wrath when he speaks? What does he say? In verse 6 it says, I say this, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Do you catch what he's saying there? The nations are raging against God, and God says, in my wrath, I'm going to tell you one more time, I have a king for you. Well, that's the very thing they're raging against, God and his anointed. But God doesn't bend to their rage. He declares again, There is a king in Zion. I have set, you get that? When God sets something, do you think that's ever going to move? I have set my king. God has a king for us. He has set him on Zion's hill. While you continue to rage, as we sang earlier on the song, I reign. Jesus is saying, while you rage, I reign. I'm still who you're going to have to answer to. Let's look at the next section. So we have uh, already come through two sections. The third section here 
Who is this king? Let's, let's find out God has set a king. Well, I wonder who it is and what's so special about God's chosen king. Verse 7 to 9, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In this section, we find God telling us about this chosen king. Verse 7, the only begotten of the Father. Does that ring a bell to you? The only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is this that God is talking about? In the Old Testament, a son is begotten by the Father. You know who it is. It's the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 8. The future is secure in him. Do you see that in verse 8? Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. In other words, God has got far-reaching arms to give you a future and a hope in his king, in Jesus Christ. The future is secure. His reign is forever. Verse 9, about this king, he has ultimate power. Now. Earlier, it said, why do the nations rage? And did you see them trying to collect each other? They want to have, well, hey, are you with me? Are you with me? We're going to fight God. And they try to gather. This king stands alone. In fact, the final battle, he fights alone. While the nations think there's power in numbers, God says there's power in one. Ultimate power. He cannot and he will not be thwarted. Listen to how John, in looking up from Psalms to Revelation, I began to see the picture of God's king is the same king that we find in Revelation 19.11. So in Revelation 19.11, if you were to look at that, listen to this. Then John said, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Verse 16, finally, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. I wonder what that name is. Well, it says what its name is. King of kings. Lord of lords. What does that, we use that phrase sometimes, maybe you're familiar with the King of kings and Lord of lords. Did you see what it is? King over kings. Lord over Lord. There is no other but him. He is ruler over all, and he will be the uh, one in which all are judged. This psalm is lifting up the name of Jesus high for every nation that rages, 
And for everyone that understands the begotten of the Father, the anointed one, he is holding it up. If you serve Christ, you serve the king. If you rebel against God, you rebel against the king. You're rebelling against him. In Psalm 2, verses 10 to 12, let's see what happens as we follow it up. Verse 10 says, Now therefore, because of these things, O kings, be wise and be warned. It's like God wants them to wise up. It's like God said, be wise and be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It's interesting that he actually uses the word rejoice. There's an opportunity for you to rejoice in trembling. Kiss the son. This is the, this is the call. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who don't rage against him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The call is stop fighting against God. Start finding your rest in him. Start finding your refuge in him. The thing that you hate should be the thing you love. So be wise and be warned. Look at in verse 10, I would, I would talk about it like this. Therefore, in verse 10, because of the certainty, because of the certainty and the reality of God's chosen king, be wise and be warned. I'm not saying it might be that we answer to this king. I'm not saying that God might have set a king over on Zion's hill. I'm saying he has. I'm saying, and the word of God is declaring, there is one king of kings and lord of lords. And so be wise to learn of him. And be wise to submit yourself to him. And be warned. Number, and verse 11, it says this, it is wise to fear the Lord. You see that? Serve the Lord with fear. Probably brings to mind Proverbs. In Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. The the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Be wise and fear the Lord. In verse 12 then, uh, or actually in following up through that, our service to God is born out of our fear and our knowledge of him. Why do we serve God? Do we serve God because we are afraid of him? We already saw in Psalm 1, delight yourself in the Lord. But we serve him because we know who he is. We serve him because he is the king of kings. He is the Lord. There is no one higher than him. And so if you want to serve some, the, the God of the universe, if you want to uh, submit yourself under the highest of high, then submit yourself to the anointed one of God, the chosen King, God Himself, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And submit yourself. Look at this um, idea of rejoicing and trembling. In verse uh, 12, it says, rejoice with trembling. There's joy in serving the King. There's joy, even though we know He is all-powerful, we also know He is full of grace. He's full of mercy. We can serve Him In reverence and fear, in other words, we never assume or presume 
upon his power, but we also can rejoice that he loves us. The king of kings loves the subjects of his kingdom. Yes. And so we can serve and rejoice in trembling. That phrase, rejoice in trembling, should always be who we are. We rejoice in the God Almighty. He's powerful. Don't lose the awesomeness of God. In James 4, 6, as we think about humbling ourselves and kissing the Son, it's a, it's a strange, for us, it might seem odd, kissing the Son. Um, but in James 4, 6, it kind of sets us up for humility. But he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In verse 10, it goes on to say that humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humility is a necessity for the kingdom. No, humility, trembling before him uh, to recognize he is God and you are not is a good thing. Verse 12 in this kissing the son, submit, bow before, this is how it's described, to bow before, to submit yourself, to surrender to him. It sounds strange in our modern culture. We don't really normally witness anything in real life like royalty having a ring that you would actually bow and kiss the ring. We don't, we don't have that exercise in, uh, in our modern culture right now, but this is what it's mean. To literally bow before the king, to kiss the son, is to submit yourself to his rule. Well, verse 1 in chapter 2 says the nations reject that. They rage against the Son. And yet the calling of God is to stop raging and start kissing the Son. It's a, it's a, God is showing you that you're not going to win unless you realize that He is sovereign over all things. Stop raging or else you will perish underneath the wrath of God. Here's the warning. And, and we've had a number of warnings over the last few years of Scripture. and all Scripture's full of warnings. I wonder why the Scripture warns us so much. Because we're prone to go that way. We're prone to go that way. The warning is this. You're not going to win fighting against God. If you think right now that you've got your life and you're okay and you just came to church to check it off and say, God, leave me alone, if you're rejecting God, you're going to perish. The warning is you will perish. God's wrath will come upon you. Rather, the psalmist is saying, kiss the Son, take refuge in God, and be blessed. Here's the applications. Happy or blessed are all who take refuge and who place their faith and love and trust in Jesus Christ, God's chosen King. The nature of sin is rage and rebellion. The nature of sin, all sin, it's rage and rebellion. It's rebellion against God and His anointed. This goes all the way back to Genesis, the beginning of mankind. And this is no different now than it was then. For God knows in Genesis 3, 5, that when you eat of it, your eye, this is the temptation, your eyes will be open 
and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And you know what happened? Adam and Eve, they partook of the tree, and they were cursed. But the temptation was that you would be your God. You could overthrow God. Surely God didn't say what he said. We, like Adam and Eve, are easily tempted with this sin. And Satan knows it. Don't think that you are above it. Don't think that why do the nations rage? And you'd be saying, yeah, why do they rage? I don't. Oh, yeah? We're prone to wander and we're prone to sin. So be careful. Don't think that you're above it. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves to God, then resist the devil and he will flee from you. In other words, self-sovereignty, the thought of doing away with God is not going to win anything except your perishment or your, your judgment. It's a fight you cannot and you will not win. It's ridiculous to think that you can. Um, Jesus, let me just tell you straight up what I believe Psalm 2 is telling us this morning. Jesus is God's chosen king. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is exactly who he says that he is. And why, why would I say he is exactly who he said? Don't doubt him. Don't doubt what God is saying. There is a king set in Zion. I have a king that is set to rule. Does he have another king? Can I have king number two? Can I, can I have a different world, a different paradigm, a different universe? No, I have a king. His name is Jesus. And we are all drawn to deal with him. We're all drawn to accept or reject this king. He is exactly who he says he is. You can, you can put your hope and trust in him. You can put your hope in the power of this king. Let me let me just kind of share just briefly about the power of Christ versus the power of the raging nations. Can you see the contrast of the power of God and the power of all the raging nations? So if you ever get discouraged in this world that all this world is chaos, I don't even think God could solve these problems or issues then you need to take another look at this king. This king rules over all things. And he ultimately will be the answer that all of these people are going to answer to. You're either going to kiss the sun and live, or you will rage against them, and the God of the universe will pour his wrath on you. That's your only options. But this king is supreme. You can trust this as the pow more powerful than any raging nation, more powerful than any evil in this world, more powerful than your own corrupted heart and sin and life. God is more powerful than your guilt and shame and whatever you think. Well, I would submit myself to the king, but I don't think he loves me. I would submit myself, but I think he would, he's going to be angry with me. He is angry at sin, and he already poured his wrath out on his anointed son. And so there, he's saying, you come and kiss the son who's taken the wrath for you and live. Kiss the son or perish. Um, it can't be any more clear than this. 
verse 12 of chapter 2 cannot be any more clear. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I think that taking refuge in him is so different than just knowing his name. If you know the name of Jesus, great. But that's not the same as taking refuge in him. If you've come to church this morning and thinking that, wow, coming to church is what uh, does this for you, that somehow you're saved by your attendance. You're not saved by your attendance. You're saved by kissing the Son, taking refuge in Him, saying, God, you are everything. I'm, I'm doomed without you. I know that I have raged against you, and for that I come and repent of my sin, and I accept the anointed King on my behalf. It's called salvation. And so don't think that you can't approach God. He's doing all necessary for you to stop your raging and come to the anointed king, the king of your soul, the king of salvation, God's chosen king. You can take refuge in him. There will be a day when all will bow before God's chosen king. There will be a day, it says, that we will all bow before him. And let me just tell you something that I experienced, and I, I remember this vividly. I don't, I don't remember every youth conference I've ever gone to, but I was a youth pastor in Texas before coming here. So you know how long ago this was. But um, as a youth pastor, we, I took a group of students to Reunion Arena in Dallas, Texas for a hot heart rally. I think it was called Hot Hearts back then. And we went to this Reunion Arena, where there's thousands of students, and they had bands and speakers. You know how it is. It's a conference. And they had speakers, and they had bands. And I don't know the name of the band, and I don't know the name of the speakers. because It was just a moment in that auditorium when a song came on that they were performing that was simply titled, Bow Now or Bow Later. Not Bow Wow, all right? It's Bow Now. It's a youth conference. You never know. Bow now, or you will bow later. And they divided that, con- that reunion arena, and the students would, would chant on, you know how it goes, this side of the arena would say, bow now, and this one's, or bow later. The point is, you're going to bow before God's chosen king. So it's best to kiss the son now. It's best to submit to him now, or else you will be Crushed. It says that he will, he will crush you with his wrath. Well, it says in, in Philippians 2, Paul says the same thing. It's almost like bow now or bow later. It's, listen to this. Talking about Jesus. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This is what our chosen king has done. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So how do you view God's chosen king? Rage 
or refuge. When you, see, when you hear the name of Jesus Christ, do you rebel or you, do you rejoice? If it's rage or if it's rebellion, it's going to lead to your ruin. If you take refuge in him, if you submit to him, if, you, if you've embraced him as your king, you have much rejoicing in the, re, in the refuge and safety of Christ. So there, in Psalm 2, is simply a high view of Christ is ruling over all nations, but if he rules over all nations, that includes you. He's the ruler of the nations, and the nations are made of people, and the people are made of families, and the families are made of individuals. You can kind of see that this high king, Jesus, reigns. He will reign over you as judge, or he'll reign over you as Savior and Lord. Either way, Christ is Lord over all. So kiss the Son. Let's pray together. Father God, as we've opened your word this morning and we began to see a picture or a glimpse of your plan for the nations, and not only the nations, the individuals that are called by you to come to your Son. The grace is available as long as we have breath to breathe. We can kiss the Son and be saved. Lord, show us again who you are and what you have done for us. And even in the raging of the nations, you speak to us. Even in the corruption of this world, you speak. You speak, I have set my king on Zion's hill, my anointed one, my chosen king, the Lord Jesus. So God, may we all reflect and see, are we raging Or are we taking refuge in him? And if there's anyone here this morning that's dealing with the rebellion, Lord, open their eyes to who you are and who they are in need of you. You're so good. You're so gracious. Even in your wrath, we understand that you are holy, but you're so merciful. God, may we bend the knee. May we bend our our stiff necks to become soft so that the potter can remake the clay. In Jesus' name.